This is a crowd podcast. This is We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. Little Rock, Pastor Mac, Mickey Mantle, Kerouac, Sputnik, Chewing Light, Bridge on the River Kwai, Lebanon, Good Food, Great Weather, Bad Wars. Hello and welcome to episode 63 of We Didn't Start the Fire, a song that's become a podcast that's a history lesson about all the biggest, strangest and most beautiful stories that shaped our world. Billy Joel drew our crazy route map. We just follow wherever it goes. Cold War, hot movie stars, big dogs, dirty dogs, tragedies and triumphs. I'm Tom Fordyce. I'm Katie Puckrick. Katie's school is out, Billy's in, and where are we heading today? We are heading over to the Lebanon, which is a country that the biggest impact it has on me is the cuisine. Because for many years, when I was living near the Edgware Road in London, every other little food joint up and down that straza was called Beirut Express or <laughs> Beirut Cuisine or Beirut Kebab. So I'm very familiar with its deliciousness. Mm, okay. My experience with the Lebanon, Katie, is also slightly removed from the first instance in that when I was a kid growing up, because there was a civil war raging in the Lebanon, it was a place that became almost a sort of a black joke for comedians that you wouldn't want to go on holiday to the Lebanon. And then when I met various Lebanese expats down the years, I got a very different story, which was that Beirut had been the Paris of the Med, that it was this wonderful country where you could be on the beach in the morning and you could be skiing in the mountains in the afternoon. So I've always been intrigued by the Lebanon. Oh, well, we're going to find out all about the skiing, the mountains, the sunning yourself on the beach, and perhaps even the kebabs, and most certainly about the Civil War. The whole history is very, very complex and very delicious. Today, we welcome a historian of modern Lebanon. She's based at the University of Cambridge. She is Chloe Qatar. Welcome. Thank you very much. I'm really glad to be here. Oh, so we need to know a little bit of context about the Lebanon. Can you describe for us, Chloe, the, the various cultures in the region, the different communities, the way people there coexisted over history? So Lebanon is a very small country um, on the eastern part of the Mediterranean. And it's known to be, you know, this mosaic of communities. And we mainly uh, identify them as religious communities. So far, there's like 17 recognized sectarian communities in Lebanon, among them Christians, Muslims, and, you know, various sects within those bigger uh, religions. People do have the same customs, the same cultures. We do, I mean, I know you mentioned the food, so we do eat all of the same food kind of. So the differences really are mainly, uh, mainly religious. I mean, apart from very specific episodes of political violence, um, overall, those groups have inhabited together, right, this territory for a very long time. Katie, this feels to me like an episode where we need quite a bit of backstory. Yeah. And Chloe, when I've been trying to establish 
everything that leads up to the Lebanese crisis of 1958, there's different themes that emerge. There's the Cold War, which is the biggie throughout the whole of Billy's song. There's the Suez crisis of 1956, Katie, which we've already covered in an episode. There is the rise of sort of pan-Arabism through NASA. We did an episode on NASA. Chloe, can you try and weave together these disparate threads for us? Definitely. 1958 in Lebanon is an interesting date uh, because it's usually seen and taught as the prelude to the um, biggest longer war, which was the, you know, the main Lebanese civil war, which started in 1975, so a bit later, and then lasted 15 years. And so uh, it's kind of a forgotten date in Lebanese history. Uh, and mainly we focus more on the latter war, but it does, I mean, this event is important because it does put the foundation, I mean, for what is coming next, right? And at this time, as you, I mean, as you mentioned, the rise of Nasserism had uh, long lasting effects on the Lebanese polity at that time. Uh, now, obviously, there are many layers there. It's not only because Nasser was on the rise that the 1958 crisis unfolded. There were also uh, internal events that happened. And this has to do with the president at that time, uh, the Lebanese president at that time, Camille Shamoun. He was the second president of Lebanon, I mean, post-independence. And he was quite the pro-Western president. And once the Suez crisis started, Lebanon did not severe relations with France and the United Kingdom. And this uh, really brought lots of opprobrium on the government. There was tensions, especially between the Muslim population of Lebanon and the Christian factions, because Nasser was really popular among Lebanese Muslims and especially among, uh, you know, the sectarian chief uh, on the opposition side. And so this created lots of tensions uh, in 1956, which not only um, reflected on the political or diplomatic level, but also uh, in the streets with riots and protests against the government because of the Suez crisis. Okay, so that's the situation on the ground in the Lebanon, Chloe. It also seems that critical to what happens next is what's going on in Washington and in particular, what becomes known as the Eisenhower Doctrine. Yes. So um, this is following the Suez crisis, right? So um, on the ground, obviously, Shamaroun doesn't want to severe the relationships with Western powers. But at the same time, in Washington, there's the Eisenhower Doctrine that's put forward in January 57. Right. And which is kind of uh, the United States Middle Eastern policy at that time. You had before, obviously, the Marshall Plan for Europe, right, which was about economic help, but also uh, about sheltering Europe from Soviet expansion. And this was a bit the same rationale, but from the but for the Middle East. It's a bit ambiguous, right, what they were offering, uh, because Lebanese expectations were higher than what the American could offer. So the Eisenhower Doctrine was, of course, uh, economic help, offering military assistance, right, giving equipment to any country of the Middle East being threatened by what was called back then international communism. What's interesting is that the Eisenhower Doctrine was actually welcomed in the Middle East by some countries favorably, right? But it was only Lebanon that actually officially accepted it and then debated it in parliament. So 
this is what really triggered things on the ground. Because even though, you know, many other Arab states would welcome American support and needed the funds, no one was uh, willing to accept this uh, officially. You know, all of this would happen uh, behind closed doors. Shamron, on the other hand, was really keen, especially him and his foreign minister, Charles Malik, uh, were keen on, you know, adopting this as official policy. And this really tipped the balance towards the opposition who thought who thought of this, you know, as a, bla a blatant disrespect of the national pact. And the national pact was an oral agreement that was passed in 1943 in Lebanon after independence, so after the end of the French mandate, and according to which the foreign policy of Lebanon should be neither east nor west, meaning that the Christians of Lebanon should not seek Western protection or Western alignment. And that on the other hand, the Muslims should not try to realign uh, Lebanon according to Arab nationalist uh, orientations. And that is so tricky, Chloe, because they also had that very unwieldy quota system for the government, including yeah. the requirement for the president to be a Maronite and the yeah. prime minister had to be a Sunni Muslim. The speaker of the parliament is a, a Shia Muslim. And it just seems like a jigsaw puzzle uh, where if one piece gets kicked under the couch, uh, you're in trouble. Um, and then, of course, the other idea it seems like you're putting forward is um, you have uh, Eisenhower's government dangling this this aid, but it's contingent on uh, Lebanon eschewing communist help or or maybe not so obviously aligning with their Muslim Arab neighbors. So you can see why there is an allure, but you can mm -hmm. also see why they were struggling within about which way to go. And the other thing is, um, wasn't it true that the Americans weren't really clear. They weren't really that well informed about which way Lebanon was leaning, because I think probably the Americans were a little too overexcited about the idea that everybody was going to go with Soviet Union and that wasn't really the case. Yes, indeed. So there, I mean, in the literature, it's very clear, right, that when you look at it now, the threat of communism, especially in Lebanon, was very exaggerated. So that was not a case in Syria, for instance, where uh, the Communist Party was one of the best organized one in the Arab world. Mm. Uh, there was a Communist Party in Lebanon. It was the oldest one. Uh, it was established before independence, but it was, um, I mean, it has limited uh, influence and impact. So the, I think the point of the Eisenhower doctrine was mainly to block Arab nationalism or just Nasserist infiltration, which, I mean, by that time was backed by the Soviet. But I mean, we should remember that Nasser's uh, relationship to the Soviets fluctuates by this time. So at first, you know, they do buy arms, especially in Syria, they do get uh, Soviet funds. But by the end of the crisis, Nasser is going towards rapprochement with uh, the United States. So it changes very rapidly and, and expectation or, or, you know, opinions on both of the on both sides are not quite clear or not quite exact, yeah. Katie, sometimes when we hear about situations on We Didn't Start the Fire, we get a sense of a kindling box and a spark that is about to fall into the kindling. Everything Chloe has told us about the Lebanon makes me think instead of some vast tinderbox, like it's the whole place is just ready to go, isn't it? And yeah. Chloe, what is the spark in the end 
that lights the whole place up? So there are many things here. There's, as always with Lebanon, it's a mix of internal and regional factors, right? The, um, there's two things. So I'm going to uh, use one example of each. So first of all, there's the parliamentary elections of 1957 in Lebanon, uh, which uh, we know now um, to have been kind of instrumentalized by Shamoun to make sure that the parliament would comprise representatives who were pro his foreign policy. So he used a combination of gerrymandering, of uh, rewriting the electoral law uh, to make sure that the districts, the electoral districts in Lebanon were, were redrawn. And this meant that many strong Muslim opposition leaders lost the, their seats. And so the point here is that he wanted to make sure that the next parliament would support him because his, his aim was to amend the Lebanese constitution in order to make his, uh, himself uh, re-elected as the president, which was back then unconstitutional. So he wanted a second mandate, which was not possible in Lebanon. So this really set ablaze kind of the opposition. And this is where uh, the other event, the other regional event uh, comes into play, which is the creation of the United Arab Republic in 1958, you know, which is the union between Egypt and Syria. And Lebanon recognized uh, the existence of uh, or the establishment of the UAR. But on the ground, when this is announced, um, there's many, you know, joyful protests in Lebanon, you know, people take it to the street, they welcome this. Uh, they said that they want Lebanon to, you know, join the UAAR, especially in Tripoli, in Beirut. And this, again, you know, amplifies the tensions. And so starting this point, and, and even a bit before, the UAR, especially through Syria, starts sending money, weapons to the opposition in Lebanon. And this is where, you know, this start escalating and become uh, becomes a military confrontation, especially in May, June, July 1958. So, Chloe, we have a good understanding based on everything you've said of what uh, the leaders were doing and all of the jiggery pokery that was ensuing. But what was it like for the average Lebanese citizen living there as the civil war was brewing? Were they like, oh, not this again? Or did they have a sense that it never really was going to happen? I mean, what was life like? That's a very good question because that's another thread in Lebanese history, right? Because there are outbursts, you know, of political violence, of direct confrontation, but it it's always happens, you know, in, in concentrated regions or in concentrated period, which means that those regions that are not directly within the sphere of confrontation, I mean, do live their lives as normal. Obviously, they're, they're, I mean, the lives are impacted, right? But um, they still, you know, I mean, there are accounts of, for instance, when the American troops arrived, you know, people were on the beach, uh, sunbathing. Oh, uh, that is were... so crazy. So they're just chilling on their beach blankets <laughs> yeah, with, yeah. A mo with a margarita, reading a magazine, and then here come the troops. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but this is how it happened, really. And there were, you know people who came to see the Americans and take picture with them, especially, you know, young boys, uh, street vendors. So they uh, weren't running away screaming in fear. Was it more of a curiosity or did they feel like, oh, good, there will be liberated? Like what what did they think about what the Americans were going to do when they were there? 
So obviously, when the American arrived, I think they stayed, if I'm not mistaken, they stayed on the beach for a day or so before they were allowed to enter the city. So, I mean, there was no fighting that occurred. So I'm not saying that people were right. not afraid, but this was not an attack. So the point of the uh, of the deployment was obviously to send American personnel, but the instruction w was not to wage war. I mean, as, I mean, at this point, right? So, I mean, then the situation was diffused because Fuad al back then, who was the commander of the army, met the the American troops once they, they arrived to the city. I mean, overall, probably 1,500 people died, but the rest of the country was was still living its life, right? Because they were happening in specific in specific point and in a scattered way. And this was this happened again in the Lebanese Civil War, but this was obviously right. a different kind of war. But depending on where you live, you could still have, you know, a, a daily life which was not directly impacted by violence, yeah. Katie, I'm going to make the timeout signal with my hands there and reach for a cold compress because this has been big stuff. Let's have a few adverts. Hello, it's me again. I've got a podcast called Dot Com, the documentary series about the people of the internet. And I just want to let you know that Series 2 is out now. It blasts open the door on Reddit, the front page of the internet. It's kooky. To me, Reddit is one of the last bastions of actual communities online. It's sinister. Reddit has really always prided itself on being the mirror that it holds up to society, right? That society has a lot of imperfections and messiness and destruction and violence, but there's so much good there as well. It's some of the biggest, most shocking stories of the century. I was raised in a fundamentalist Christian family. I feel like every time there's some big scandal going on, Reddit is 100% a contributor and an antagonist to it. Just search for .com, that's D-O-T-C-O-M, and subscribe now. So this is kind of confusing to me. I'm just trying to get my head around this because it is sort of like a, a local, a regional war. It's a civil war, but it's on steroids because, my goodness, you have the Americans there. You have the fleet. What was the goal of the Americans? I mean, it seems like a, a little bit like talk about throwing uh, gasoline on the fire. It seems like it could just get very quickly out of control. So the goal was just to make sure that, you know, the pro-Western Lebanese regime wouldn't be toppled, right? To make sure that to say that we are here, we are in the Middle East now, we are we are reasserting this zone as, you know, an American zone. It was to send also a message to the Soviet that if they were willing to, to escalate, that they were there. There are elements, Katie, of this invasion, which I, th I, th I think would probably suit us very well, um, namely the sitting on the beach drinking margaritas. <laughs> there, there are other bits which seem more nefarious and maybe the most nefarious of these from the American point of view is the involvement of the CIA. Now this was to be something of a modus operandi, Chloe, for the CIA in various countries around the world at this time. I've been reading about a couple of operatives, we shall call them, who seem to form um, quite a gruesome subplot to this whole thing. The first <laughs> of these, a man called David Attlee Phillips, who at various points in his career with the CIA, was accused of involvement in the assassination of JFK, um, mm. of involvement in the brutal psychological warfare 
that took place in Guatemala. The other character, mm. and Katie, he is maybe even more picaresque, is Miles Copeland, ah. who's one of those names that we all hear about. Yeah. Um, so if, if you're not familiar with Miles Copeland, strange fact number one, he is the father of uh, the drummer from the police, Stuart Copeland. In his CIA role, he was involved in the 1949 Syrian coup d'etat. He also, later in his life, designed a hugely successful board game for Waddington's called Game of Nations. Chloe, I'm aware that's an awful lot uh, to throw at you, but these are the sort of people who were operating when we had the Americans walking onto the beach in Beirut and being saluted by the margarita drinkers like Katie and I. There was other stuff going on at the same time. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, uh, the CIA is obviously um, an important player in the Middle East, right? And and especially in Lebanon, there's this, um, it's not really legend, but it's, you know, this cliche narrative of being a bed of spies, right? That all, I mean, all operatives, all spies, all secret services from all around the world meet in Beirut, you know, uh, they go to the same hotels, they drink the same cocktails, and then they spy on each other. There's a lot of this. Um, yeah, so I think Copeland was active back then. I mean, in Lebanese circles, Copeland is seen to be very close to Nasser, or, or probably a more kind of um, he, he had been uh, involved in, you know, uh, in giving advice to Nasser, especially on how to build the Mukhabarat, the Egyptian secret services. So Shamoun was not very fond of him. There's another CIA agent that worked really closely with Shamoun, and the, the agent was called Wilbur Eveland. So he was sent to Beirut to deliver, for instance, money to, to Shamoun so that the Shamoun could influence the parliamentary elections of 1975, right, which was another argument that the opposition had against him. So uh, Evelyn would actually go every now and then to the palace with a briefcase full of Lebanese pounds and would give it personally to Shamon because Shamon was uh, wanted to get the money in his own hands so he didn't trust anyone else and so he had this car uh, that everyone recognized as being the CIA agent car and which showed that actually at this point nobody cared about hiding those you know um, relationship and the fact that they were getting funds from the Americans yeah. And does this all go back, Katie, this is bringing back memories of something we talked about in our Eisenhower episode. This idea, Chloe, that um, to Eisenhower, sending the CIA in to do these undercover local operations was preferable to sending in vast numbers of troops and starting mm -hmm. a more traditional form of war. No, definitely. That's very typical of the Cold War, right? And this is what we call counterinsurgency. So um, finding ways of not fighting on the grounds, but yeah, using the CIA and, and secret service and intelligence to foment coups all around the world in a covert operation to make sure that now that it's the, I mean, now that we are in the Cold War, it means that we can take part only in proxy wars, but not fight ourselves the war, right? And so this is why at this period, the CIA is so important. So Chloe, we're focusing so far on all of these delicious details like suitcases stuffed with money and uh, <laughs> American soldiers stomping across a, a sunny beach in their combat boots. <laughs> but the reality is, People did die. This was a real war. Can you give us a sense of the, the violence and the bloodshed on the streets of Beirut and elsewhere? 
Yes. So the casualties for, I mean, this was a very brief war, right? So, you, I mean, and I'm saying this because I'm an expert of the other war, the Lebanese civil war. Of, the of big the 70s, brother, yeah. Which, yeah, which lasted 15 years. So to be fair, in comparison, it's not at all the same numbers, right? So this was a swift war in the sense that it was over by somehow July, August, right? There there was heavy confrontation, right? There, there was... Uh, um, armed you know a uh, struggle in the streets but overall uh 1400 people died all of these were probably mostly civilians oh. there were damages to infrastructure for instance uh, especially to establishment that were seen as imperial you know present such as you know pipelines american libraries you know that was set on fire i think one american citizen lost uh, lost their lives in tripoli when they burnt the american library so Stuff like this did happen, uh, but overall, at least from the American perspective, this was a very swift, successful operation because there was no casualty, really. I mean, no American soldier died in contrast to what will happen in the 80s, right? right. When the embassy is blown up and there's like less than 300 American soldier dead. And overall, the, the Lebanese civil war of the 70s, we are talking of like 2,100 casualties right so this is why i'm saying that this i mean obviously they were dead they were you know it was a very um risky period for lebanon but it was only the prelude right the real war as we say how it's portrayed is the one that's coming 15 years later yes and how yeah. long in all did it last then this first civil war a couple of months you're saying yeah or... a couple of months and what wrapped it up what was the thing that resolved it in the end it was the fact that nasser at this point was being more wary of his soviet relationship and more um willing to cooperate with the americans which meant that you know this was as usual the international scene in which uh, the lebanese crisis was resolved somehow quite swiftly and then i think the last the last american marine to live to leave beirut was october uh, of 1958 and back then the new president was already elected you know reconciliation or you know uh, um, uh, not really reconciliation but the new phase was already set in and so General Shahab was another key point of of making this go away and fixing it right hmm. Now, Chloe, you're the daughter of first-generation Lebanese immigrants who escaped during the 75 to 1990 Civil War yeah. to France. And I'm just wondering if you can give us some insight uh, to the legacy of living in a war zone, neighbors fighting each other. How did it affect your family? I know they didn't necessarily have experience of this first war that we're talking about, yeah. or did they? Not really, but uh, the second one, yes. yes. So my dad um, actually went to France during the first year of the Lebanese Civil War, so in 1975. He would come back to Lebanon as much as possible to see his family, right? My grandparents and my aunts. And this is where he met my mom. And so my mom went back with my dad to France, and this is where, where I was born. My family comes from the south, and the south during the Lebanese war was occupied by Israel. 
So the presence of Israel also, you know, divides the local population. But then you have a, a, a faction of the Christians who are uh, collaborating with the Israeli to, you know, uh, get rid of the Palestinian. And they form something that's called uh, the Free Army of the, the Free Lebanese Army of the South, right? And these people, because they were fighting in the South, took over or you know inhabited the house the, the the houses of people who had fled right so my grandparents fled their house in the south right because all, all of this was happening and they went to beirut so the consequence of this is that until the exit of israeli force in 2005 they lived in those houses that didn't belong to them for like 20 years and so my my grandparents my grandparents could not go back to their house until the late 2000s. I'm wondering if you feel like there's a resonance, Chloe, with the Russian war in Ukraine, just considering the close Mm -hmm. ties between the invaders and the invaded. Yeah, definitely. When the Ukrainian war started, I did write a piece on this, right, on the fact that what's happening there does strike um, an echo in, I mean, I would say in the Lebanese consciousness somehow, because uh, it's kind of the same binaries of power, I would say, Ukraine and Lebanon, on one hand, being the smaller countries, uh, neighbors to bigger, more expansionist countries, such as Syria and Russia, right? And this being based on long-standing myths of fraternity between those two countries, right? Because Lebanon was a French creation, right? Uh, there were very strong, there was a strong tradition of maintaining the ideal of, of greater Syria, right? Of Syria and Lebanon, and probably other other territories around being part of the same big uh, entity. And so this means that for the Assad regime, whether the father or the son, Lebanon was a part of, you know, an organic sphere of influence. It belonged to Syria and Syria would call the shot in in Lebanon. And this is what happens uh, in in Russia and Ukraine as well. They have the same founding myth, right? According to which they all descend from the same ancestors. They have the same cultures and Ukraine can't be too Western oriented just as Lebanon can't be too Western oriented. And each time the foreign policy of those smaller countries um, you know, comes back uh, at the front uh, of discussion. You know, there's the bigger brother that, you know, occupies or uh, try to influence this. Yeah. So Ukraine obviously is going through convulsions and trauma right mm-hmm. now as they're trying to stand their ground. How is it for your family, for your parents who did live through that second civil war, how did they regard that time? Is that something that they can reflect on and talk about and look back on? They do talk about it, but it's obviously a traumatic event in the sense that although they survived it and they found coping mechanism, right, to live through it, this has left them with a very pessimistic outlook on Lebanon. So, you know, in the sense that Lebanon is a country that will always be riddled with conflict. It's it's a, because it's a, such an explosive, you know, combination of things. It will never know peace, right? And so we are told 
from a very young age that we should, you know, either uh, leave, emigrate, try to make our lives elsewhere. So that's kind of the um, the narrative that the older generation, what we call the war generation, Jil al-Harib, this is what the narrative is. And I think this creates somehow a generational trauma because these narratives are passed on. And, and today, the newer generation, they have another set of challenges. Obviously, this is not the theme of this podcast, but in recent in the recent three years, Lebanon has gone through a lot. Um, and it seems to confirm this kind of um, predetermined fatality that Lebanon is, right? Always uh, set to failure, to destruction, you know, the Beirut explosion, the current economic crisis. And so I feel that their experience are somehow inherited by us, but that we also mixed to it our own, somehow our own tragedies, the one that happened today. Well, that all makes a lot of sense, Chloe. And I'm wondering too, what life is like for people who have stayed in Lebanon today. The One of the stories that I heard from some Lebanese friends who, um, some of whom had moved to Paris and some of whom had moved to London, was the atmosphere when they went home. They said it was almost like you were living life at twice the normal speed because mm. you felt you had to get everything done before the next tragedy struck. Yeah. Yeah, life in Lebanon now is very difficult to say the least. So there's the economic crisis with the collapse of the banking sector, which means that people can't retrieve their money in the banks, right? Uh, because of capital control as a way to make sure that the banking sector of Lebanon doesn't completely uh, go bankrupt. So this means that people have less access to their money. There's inflation, so prices, on the other hand, are soaring. The indebtedness of the Lebanese states mean that the state isn't able anymore to provide public services, which is reflected in the lack of electricity supply. So people, when they're at home, they have uh, electricity only on specific hours of the day. And obviously, all of these effects, they impact the, the poorest stratas of the population. So there's definitely a sense of living in crisis and living in very specific, strenuous con condition. There are talks about Leb in Lebanon about resilience. So to what extent one can really live and adapt to these conditions? And they do because people don't have the choice. But uh, the consequence is that, yeah, as you said, is a very stressful speed up lives which are always um, oriented towards survival, right? Making sure that we have everything in case the next tragedy happens. Or the other way around is to leave. And the other big theme now is the brain drain in Lebanon. Is that all? I mean, I'm one of them myself, right? All of the young people who have a bit more ambition, they, they leave the country. So there's also this generational aspect of young people are abroad and the older people are at home and uh, life is even harder for them. Chloe, can you give us a sense of people like yourself, the diaspora of Lebanon around the world? What do you see as your role? Are you all trying to hold it together from afar or to forward uh, an idea of the persona and the, the identity of Lebanon? 
Definitely. Uh, it's something that is happening now. But to be fair, this has been another thread in Lebanese history, right? Because uh, Lebanese immigration has started very early on. There's always been this ideal of the two components of the nation. One is the homeland, right? And one is the diaspora. I think Le people of Lebanese descent in the world probably account for 14 millions or something. Obviously, they're not all in touch with Lebanon because some of them, you know, have just been incorporated, you know, uh, through the decades in their lives in different countries. But there has always been a sense of um, the diaspora being the backbone of the homeland. And there are two very strong uh, structural reasons for this. First is the economy of Lebanon, right? Uh, because Lebanon is, um, as I said earlier, a, a country of services. It doesn't have a strong industry. You know, it relies on imports. One of the uh, way, uh, you know, for getting money in the country, especially foreign currency, is the remittances sent by expats, right? And this really is a huge amount of money that backs the Lebanese economy. So in times of crisis, like today, the diaspora, and especially, you know, because of family ties, has an economic duty, right, to send the money, and not a duty, they do it, obviously, and this does help, you know, in times of crisis to buy food, to buy medicine, stuff like that. And the other cause is, as I said, this idealist construct, right, that the diaspora, because it's so big, because it's so connected, and because, you know, they're also concentrated in the biggest cities in the world, and, and such as, as you said, Paris, London, New York, they have the means to, you know, uh, keep the morale up somehow, right? So now there are parliamentary elections happening in a month in Lebanon. So the diaspora is taking a role. They're voting this time. And so, for instance, they use social media to raise awareness, uh, to back up uh, opposition uh, parties, new political parties for young people. And so they do this also on the moral and intellectual aspect as well. Chloe, it's been wonderful having you on the show. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and your insights into this topic. And if people would like to learn more about Lebanese history and current affairs, they can follow you on Instagram. Is that right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. That's really kind. And your handle is leb.historian, L-E-B.historian. Yes. yes. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Chloe. I'm really happy to have been invited here. Um, I know that um, Lebanon is not usually a topic on those, you know, very uh, popular podcasts. So it's been an honor. And I'm, yeah, I'm very happy to have shared my thoughts here. Thanks. Tom, that was so interesting that Chloe touched on that idea of inherited trauma because that reminded me of the Stalin episode that yes. we did with Alex Halberstadt. And of course, he wrote that memoir, Young Heroes of the Soviet Union, about his grandfather, who was Stalin's final bodyguard. And that is the whole theme of his life and his memoir, that there's no getting away from this trauma that previous generations go through. They, they pass it down. You have to chew on it, process it, digest it. And sometimes it never comes out the other end. Yeah, absolutely right, Katie. I was thinking exactly the same thing. If I'm honest, and please don't think less of me for this, there was also something else I was thinking. Every was time <laughs> the name of the Lebanese president, Camille Chamon, was mentioned, I wanted to say it in the style of Michael Jackson, um, which I know makes me a bad man, but that's just the thought that was going through my head. 
And what is the style? Shimon. 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 Well, here was my question. Um, I didn't really want to trouble our esteemed guest with it, but um, both of us kept saying, you and I both kept saying, the Lebanon. Yes, I was thinking about this. And it's not the Lebanon, much like the Ukraine. There's no need for a the, yet it somehow makes you feel sort of finessed and fancy by putting... (laughs) An article before the name of the country. Why do we do that? What's our problem? The Human League, Katie, the Human League. The Human League. I'm going to blame Phil Oakey and his asymmetrical haircut. Yeah, do that, Katie. One other little thought I had when we were talking there about the UN and their involvement. When I was a kid growing up in the new town of Harlow, about 15, 20 miles outside of London, north of London, there was a street sign that I used to see all the time. So Harlow had the first ever public sports centre in Britain. It was part of this whole post-war dream of a better world for people moving out of London. And the sports centre that we used to go to on a Saturday morning was on Hammershald Road. Now, Hammershald was spelt H-A-M-M-A-R-S-K-J, O with an umlaut, L-D. This wasn't the usual sort of place name for Harlow in Essex. And I remember asking my dad, what or who is Hammerskull? And he was, of course, the second Secretary General of the UN, Katie. And he does pop up frequently in today's episode in the background. He's the man who tries to get the UN involved. He's the man who brings the peacekeeping mission. So there we go, a little bit of my past that suddenly makes sense. And what's his link to uh, better living through wrestling or whatever was going on in that health centre? <laughs> so I, th- I think because Harlow was built with this idea of a better world for everyone mm. and without spoiling the Dag Hammarskjöld story too much because he will come back when we talk about Belgians on the Congo. He will die in a plane crash on another peacekeeping mission in the Congo in 19, early 1960s. So when Harlow was being built, he would have been a hero to the new world as someone who tried to reshape it in a better way, I think. And more importantly, he introduced young Tom Fordyce to the concept <laughs> of umlauts. <laughs> Both to umlauts and sports centres, uh, one of which was to become a big part of my adult life. This is quite a lot of facts and figures, and I'm, fe- I'm, I'm feeling a bit clammy of brow. And just about at this stage of the scenario, I could certainly use a tea towel to mop ah, my face. A tea towel, Katie, with perhaps the words damp cloth utopia written upon it, <laughs> referencing a phrase from We Didn't Start the Fire. Oh, you're picking up what I'm laying down, Tom. Uh, Yeah, the tea towel is such an inspired piece of merchandise that we're flogging. We've had some emails through saying how much our uh, consumers, our listeners, have been loving those damp cloth Utopia tea towels. Um, And also there's hand-drawn cartoons on posters and t-shirts. There's a lot. There's some sassy expressions on, I think there's a bookmark. I don't want to oversell things, but basically, this is a a DIY enterprise here at Crowd Network. We're just making stuff up as we go along. And so far, the stuff's been pretty good. So we only do have a limited amount of merchandise. So I think you need to get in on this, listeners. Katie, I agree entirely. Shall we lay a little trail and tell our listeners where we're going next time? Yeah, next time is Charles de Gaulle. Now, I say Charles. Next time is Charles de Gaulle, meaning the Charles French... Charles de Gaulle. Charles... Is that... What is that? <laughs> is that, is that you trying got, to be... 
That's what got me through my GCSE French, Katie. What, that growly accent? Charles de Gaulle. That's all I said throughout the whole of the oral exam. Charles de Gaulle. To every oh. single question I was asked, Charles de Gaulle. Well, I guess it's better than la plume de ma tante. So <laughs> we are talking, of course, about the French prime minister of la France and the Algerian War of Independence. Oh, Billy is marching us all over this globe. Billy's boots are on the ground, aren't they, Katie? They certainly are. In the meantime, if you would like to follow us, that would make the day of both Katie and me. We are at Spread That Fire. You can write to us, fire at crowdnetwork.co.uk. If you would like another podcast to listen to this week, check out The Secret History of Flight 149. It is the unbelievable story of one of the biggest government cover-ups in the last three decades. It's the story of how and why a British Airways flight was allowed to land in Kuwait and its passengers were allowed to become human shields under Saddam Hussein. You can search for The Secret History of Flight 149 and subscribe now. We shall see you next week. Au revoir. Crowd Network. A place where you belong. Ever yearned for the perfect pub to reveal itself from some unexpected alley? Well, The Moon Underwater is the podcast for you. Join me, John Robbins, and the lovely Robin Allender Hi. as we help a special guest create their dream pub. From the drinks behind the bar to the music on the jukebox, The Moon Underwater is whatever you want it to be. So, if you would like to join us in Desire's beating heart, search The Moon Underwater. Or maybe The Moon Underwater will search for you. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siecla, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts. History is the greatest adventure story. But does it ever leave you wondering what the women were doing all that time? This is Lori from the Her Half of History podcast, and the answer is that some women were seizing power, or escaping slavery, or spying for their country, or creating artistic masterpieces, while countless others were doing the laundry, getting married, and wondering why their clothes don't have more pockets. If you would like to hear the stories of women doing all of those things, check out Her Half of History at herhalfofhistory.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts.